Reading, short and deep. Hi, this is Jesse and Eric, and today we're reading short and deep, the ancient track by H.P. Lovecraft. Jesse, why did you want us to discuss this particular uh, poem, the ancient track? I'm a big Lovecraft fan, and I, I've come to love his poems even more than I think I love his stories. And um, this is one I hadn't read. I, I had skimmed it, knowing that it would be something interesting. And I thought, you know what? Uh, I think we can do something with this. It's it's just like all of other Lovecraft poems. It's It's just really great. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Well, for those who haven't read all other Lovecraft, po- Lovecraft poems, um, what do you mean by it's really great? He, he, he does this thing where in the telling, it becomes much more interesting than what's actually happening. You get a feeling when you read a Lovecraft poem or a story, and that that is really his aim, is to put you in a certain mood and to give you a certain feeling. And that feeling is not a feeling of, you know, happiness or joy or, you know, uh, sadness. It's a, it's a feeling of being sort of weirded out, which is, uh, I think, pretty cool. So uh, in this case, I think it's very subtle. Um, it, in many other cases, it's much more, um, explicit, right? There's, there's no monsters in this poem. I have to say that, or are there, (laughs) when I read the poem the first time, I read it as a horror poem, uh, trying to give me a feeling. And I, I don't know if my sense of foreboding and doom, um, that I got, from the very first line, or I should say the very first two lines, is what you meant by weirded out. But I also have to say that as I've read and reread the poem, it has changed its meaning to me radically. Mm -hmm. And so in order to make it easier for me to understand what you mean, uh, could you give me a sense of how you're seeing the poem, what, what story this actually is telling? Well, uh, I would start with the opening and closing lines, which are symmetrical. He does this a lot in his fiction as well. Um, some of his stories are prose poems. And the, in that symmetry, we're back where we started, Right. Um, and because it's a, uh, 44-line poem uh, with two stanzas, we get a, a, a kind of symmetry there. And each, each line is coupled with the next line in couplets. So because it's not perfectly symmetrical, we get like a, a weird feeling because of that. It feels like things are cut short, but he starts right back at the beginning where he was. So I would think, given that this is such a short poem, I should just read a couple of lines from it and see if what it does. Because 
to me, it it puts me in a certain place. There was no hand to hold me back that night I found the ancient track. Over the hill, and strained to see the fields that teased my memory. So, it's night. But it's past. And he's expecting to see something. He is, in fact, plotting it out. Like a track he's been on before. And by the time we get to the second stanza, he's reached the crest of the hill, or at least his eyes have. And everything is unfamiliar. Right away, I have to say that I see your reading of those first two lines um, as showing the enormous productive use of uncertainty in Mm -hmm. Lovecraft's language. Those first two lines... There was no hand to hold me back that night I found the ancient track. The way you just described those two lines, you said that he got back on this track that he had known before. It seems like that's one way to read it. It, And it certainly is. The way I first read it, I read the word found as initial discovery. Mm Mm-hmm. And so for me, there was no hand to hold me back the night I found that ancient track. I had an immediate sense of foreboding. That is, somehow the speaker seems to feel that there should have been some restraint, uh, whether it is from a supernatural God figure or his culture should have taught him differently, or he should have had within himself a superego that would have known to stop. But Mm -hmm. no, he was unrestrained, and in so being, there was a kind of libertinage that allowed him to stumble upon this ancient track, which sounds a little bit like ancient trap. And Knowing that Lovecraft is a is a great lover of language, in fact, excelled in linguistics, I paid attention to some of these things. The word ancient actually comes from the Latin ante annus, before years, before there was time. Mm-hmm. So this ancient track is a trap into which humanity, because we don't know who this guy is in particular, right? The speaker could be anything. That's right. Has, has fallen so often. So to me, that word found was initial discovery, initial recognition of something that had always been there and had trapped us. Uh, and that's not how you read it. But I think we're well, reading that, talk- that is one. That is one of the ways I read it. And like you, I, I love rereading, especially this something this deep. And, you know, to me, when you get to the end and you read the, that repetition, at the end, there was no hand to hold me back. That night I found the ancient track. He is walking into the spray of the star streams. So the hand becomes gravity almost in my mind. Something restraining him on the earth. But it's also that ancient track becomes like the track that all of us are on. The track between birth and death. 
I think I, I certainly got that on my uh, initial reading of the poem, that, that that ancient track is one toward death. And in some of the words that follow in the poem, like looking down into the veil, and one thinks of the veil mm-hmm. of tears and so on. Um, and we see a church spire. So, you know, there's always a churchyard nearby for mm-hmm. burying people. Um, I, too, saw that, you know, it's as if he suddenly realized, my gosh, um, I'm on my way to death. I'm following that same path that mortals, those who can die, have always had to travel. Um, so I'm with you. I, I, I can get that reading, too. But what I particularly like about what you said in the closing repetition, the third use of that couplet, you're seeing that as a liberation. There was no hand to hold me back. Mm-hmm. That night I found the ancient track. And to me, I think the key recognition of this poem, whether you read it once or multiple times, is to recognize that between the first statement of that couplet and the last statement of that couplet, what at first had seemed like a failure, you know, uh, whether it's, you know, I'm back on this track that I have known all along, as you first suggested as one possibility, or I suddenly found I was there where I did not want to be um, once I realized where it was, as I had suggested. In either case, the repetition, that is the third use, the second repetition of that couplet to end the poem, that, that lack of restraint, which looks like it points us at death or horror, in fact, may bring us to the stars. So it becomes hopeful. That changes the poem's ultimate feeling radically and and we don't know and that that's the weirding out so we know that that he is unrestrained and yet things are not completely beneficent here we we've got a a beautiful mirror in the first stanza we've got images of the valley as it will appear to him because he's expecting the moon to rise and see all of the things in that veil, right? The farmhouse and the uh, the the path and the 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 sign that says two miles to Dunwich, the spire, the roof, and he says just a little bit farther, two with ten more upward paces gone, right? He will see all of these things and. When he either, I'm not sure if he's walking uh, or if this is simply him staring down into this valley and expecting to see it. Uh, But either way, when, when that break comes between the first and second stanza, he has had that moon reveal to him what's going on. The second stanza reads, There was no hand to hold me back. That night I found the ancient track. And reached the crest to see outspread a valley of the lost and dead. And over Zaman's hill, the horn of a malignant moon was born. To light the weeds and vines that grew on ruined walls I never knew. The fox fire glowed in field and bog, and unknown waters spewed a fog, whose curling talons mocked the thought that I had ever known this spot. Too well I saw from that mad scene 
that my loved past had never been, nor was I now upon the trail, descending to that long dead vale. Around was fog, ahead the spray of the star streams in the Milky Way. There was no hand to hold me back. That night I found the ancient track. To me, this is all unfamiliar, foggy, horrible landscape. And yet, he's still going. Has he gone too far? Is he, What happened to this valley that he's seeing before him? He's on this track. Is, is this a reincarnation story? That's what I love about Lovecraft's writings is even when he is describing what's what visually is going on, it's it's not enough to close the gap to knowledge. It, it makes the imagination one run wild. I love that you use the term. Is it a reincarnation story? Um, I. I Perhaps this is just going to sound crazy to you, Jesse, but I think that after numerous readings, the place where I settle is that this is a religious poem. It feels like one. Uh, I think it's not just in feeling, although it is. I think there are many references here that are resonant with well-known religious texts. And there are terms in this poem that can be read that way. And the speaker is, can be read as Jesus undergoing his final hmm. passion. You've uh, got that hill there. I beg your pardon? You've got that hill there. Well, not only do we have the hill... Uh, give you some other pieces that that came into focus for me. Uh, again, with Lovecraft's uh, extraordinary use of ambiguous language in the in the the best sense, um, it begins as you said. There was no hand to hold me back that night. I found the ancient track over the hill and strained to see the fields that teased my memory. This tree. That wall, I knew them well, and all the roofs and orchards fell familiarly upon my mind as from a past not far behind. Let me just stop there. That word fell, and all the roofs and orchards fell. Given that this is poetry, that we stop at the end of the line, hesitate for just a moment, and that in poetry we often have adjectives following nouns instead of preceding them. And in ornate language such as Lovecraft's, the word fell is often an adjective meaning mm. um, fateful and, and evil. Uh, what we see is all the roofs and orchards fell. The, that is, all of these things that are of human production, houses and plantings, right? All of these things of human production are evil, ah, but they fell familiarly upon my mind. Mm -hmm. So at this beginning of the poem, the speaker is very much human, but they are from a past not far behind. There's, there's, uh, there's you know, before Thomas Aquinas um, comes up with a way to, um, to square Aristotelian worldview with the early Christian church, um, 
the church is really platonic and it, it follows some of the same underlying uh, senses of how the, the world is constructed. In Platonism, we begin as souls, um, you know, forms, ideas. And then when we are born, we lose a sense of what we had before. So in Plato's world, we, mm-hmm. we, discovery is what he calls anagnoresis, the, the unforgetting um, of what it is that we forgot in the process of being born. So revelation is often a matter of coming to realize what we had always known. It seems mm-hmm. to me that one can read the past not far behind as the heavenly life of the son before he becomes wholly human. That is W-H-O-L-L-Y. And I, I started looking at some of these etymologies. The word teased, this blew my mind. The word teased, well, you understand, it means, you know, colloquially, let's tease somebody and, you know, annoy mm-hmm. him, uh, either in a humorous way or, or not so humorous. But we also know that the word tease has another meaning, as in uh, pulling threads out of sweaters. Mm-hmm. Well, I looked it up, and it turns out that for hundreds of years, literally, actually close to 2,000 years in the history of English, the word tease uh, has a meaning before it gets to the modern one. And that word meaning does have to do with pulling things apart, specifically pulling fibers apart. And in fact, it goes back to thorns pulling fibers of wool, sheep catching their fleece in brambles. Mm-hmm. As, for example, in the Lamb of God, or if you give a Christian prefigurative reading of the Old Testament, the ram that's stuck in the bramble bush that God provides, or the angel of God provides, so that Abraham doesn't, in fact, have to go through with the sacrifice of Isaac. But then God himself, in the New Testament, does allow his own son to be sacrificed for us. And that hill that that the speaker is approaching and he knows that it's going to be his location for three hours, which is the canonical amount of time that Jesus spends on the cross. This hill that he's approaching is, I think, an echo of Calvary. So when he comes to realize that this world is only transient, then he looks and he sees the possibility of star streams in the Milky Way, then there is no hand to hold me back. He's found the ancient track. He's on his way. Mm -hmm. So in the middle, when he's feeling despair, I'm reminded of Christ's fourth word on the cross. You know, there's that notion that if you go through the four gospels and you see what Jesus is said to have said, and you put them together and drop out duplicates, there are seven different things that he said. And if you go in Europe, for example, if you find roadside shrines with just a cross, uh, I've often seen them with seven steps leading up to them and with those four phrases um, inscribed from the first at the bottom to the, the seventh at the top before you see the, the model of the cross with the, the icon, uh, the statue hanging there. The fourth one, I have always thought, is the essential one for Christian theology. That's the one that is also given in the King James Bible in the original Aramaic. 
Eloi, Eloi, lamach sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So from the beginning to the end of the Passion of Christ, the crucial middle is when he thinks he is in fact separated from God. So that first line, couplet that you pointed to, there was no hand to hold me back that night I found the ancient track. You could read it as, how come nobody prevented me from getting into this terrible situation? says the human Jesus. Then the second time we get it, the first repetition, the beginning of the second stanza, there was no hand to hold me back that night I found the ancient track. He says that just after he realizes that he's about to get to the top of that hill. The preceding lines are the ones you quoted of distant <laughs> spire and roofs would dawn with 10 more upward paces begone. So he'd get to the great light opening instead of the darkness that he's in right now when he goes up those 10 paces, gets to the top of the hill. There was no hand to stop him from getting there. Then he looks down and realizes what life is like for humanity. He says, um, over Zaman's hill, the horn of a malignant moon was born. <laughs> right To see all of these things, I never knew. Of course he never knew them because by this time, He's becoming Jesus, the Holy Spirit. He's becoming God again. So he never really knew them because he couldn't really experience them except when he was fully human. Right? Malignant is an amazing word. I mean, we all know what it means. But I wonder you know, sort of where it came from. And it turns out for the first 200 years, that word malignant existed in one phrase and one phrase only. It was a Protestant term for the Roman church, which they called the church malignant. So what we have here is a modern American who is taking on the voice of, of someone who despairs because of his separation from God, who comes to suffer, who has his memory pulled apart like the lamb being caught on the thorns of life, or perhaps ultimately we'll see those thorns as a crown. But then when he fully understands it, he realizes that this is what allows him to go into the firmament, to go up into the heavens. And that is the ancient track. So if we can follow this, this is almost a song of praise. And I thought, where do I know these things? You know, where do I know these things? At I looked, and if you take a look at Amazing Grace, you know that, that <laughs> hymn, mm -hmm. right? That word found, which is so right. crucial here, it's right in that first stanza. I once was lost, but now am found, was blind, but now I see. And so, I, okay, so I looked further. Just listen if you'll give me another moment of the first mm -hmm. two stanzas, I mean the second and third stanza. "'Twas grace that taught my heart to fear," which is what's going on in the beginning of this poem, "'and grace my fears relieved,' which is what happens in the second part of the poem. "'How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed.'" Then that third stanza, "'Through many dangers, toils, and snares,' think of snares and again the, mm -hmm. the wool caught on the thorns, 
I have already come. Tis grace hath brought me safe thus far, and grace will lead me home. Uh, it seems to me that when we read the couplet, the repeated Lovecraft couplet the third time, there was no hand to hold me back that night I found the ancient track. Now it's not God isn't there to keep me from doing something bad, but rather humanity cannot hold me back from going home to God. Mm-hmm. I think I think you can read it exactly as you've done. Uh, you know, you said the very first time you read it, you, you were expecting it to be a horror poem. And I think it is all of the things you say it is, because Lovecraft was not a, a believer in God. He thought he thought that the the place of humanity in the universe was profoundly insignificant. He was a a big fan of astronomy, and when he looked up into the the sky, which he often did, he he was a night walker, person who loved to walk at night. He would think of how little we were, thinking of all of those stars, how far away they were. He knew how far away they were. And thinking of the planets that must be around them and wondering if there was anyone else out there on any of those other planets like himself. Walking this ancient track as he's done, you know, between Zaman's Hill and Dunwich, which lies just two miles beyond, he's expecting to see exactly what he's going to see. In the first stanza, he describes what he will see. And when that moon rises, it doesn't light up the valley. Instead, it's a, a malignant crescent, a very thin light. And instead, the, the light of the landscape is hard to see with fog that curls like talons. And the city instead of being there or the town instead of being there has ruined walls vines growing over the rocks and he sees a valley dead the only light instead of from the moon that he expects it to be there is from foxfire which is growing on fields and bogs and foxfire is a, a fungus uh, growth. It's a l- illuminated fungus. This is uh, a very dark view of the earth, and it seems as if this could be a suicide story as well, <laughs> because he is able, it seems, to walk into the sea, but the sea is not the sea of of a town, you know, on the seaside. It's the sea of the stars. I think I think that's not only a, a reasonable way to read it, but it in fact focuses on on the images that the poet puts forward. Why I find this poem even more interesting than uh, others might be with uh, similarly vivid and and fell imagery is the way the grammar when we attend to it, asks us to to augment one reading with another. Uh, for example, um, the ruined walls, right? 
Those are ruined world walls. I never knew, he says. Now, is that ruined walls? Are those ruined walls that he never knew? Were they always ruined and he never had realized that they were ruined? But now he sees how, in fact, humanity is just in a fallen state um, because previously he had not realized what it means to be reduced to humanity. Or is it that these are ruined walls which he never got to see? Because what he's looking at is the far future, as well as the past not far behind and his current present, as if he has a perspective like God's that is absolutely divorced from time. So when he says these are unknown waters, uh, what are those waters? Are they are they Lethe or Styx, uh, Nepenthe, or those, those ancient Greek um, waters that make us lose our memory and cross over into death? Are they the four rivers that define the the boundaries of Eden from which humanity has always uh, always since original sin been expelled or are they in fact the stream of the Milky Way I'm, I'm reminded of that incredible image at the end of Dante's Paradiso when Dante looks up and all of the stars of the Milky Way rush together and then form um, this great rose, a symbol of Mary, who allows us uh, in me- medieval iconography, allows us to to get to heaven. And then he wakes up and he's mm-hmm. back on the hillside, which is exactly what's going on here. He goes out on the hillside at the beginning, you know, in the middle of the way of life. Um, the, the divine comedy begins and it ends with this image of light. So we're following that same thing. These are things we see here. That is, the words are in the poem, but the speaker is saying, nor was this, in fact, what I saw, nor was I now upon the trail descending to that long dead veil. So it's in his mind, but his mind is already somehow freed from that, whether it's freed because it never existed or it's freed because he can transcend it. That has to do with whether it is, in fact, a mad scene and it's all his mind going mad, multiplying the horror, or it's a story about spiritual transcendence. And to me, it seems it's both. Ah, Exactly. It is. It is both. And that's the wonderful thing about a poem and and poetry. And when you you uh, you see it evoked so well in Lovecraft, it's because every word has all of the meanings that each word is so carefully placed that it's chosen to have those multiple meanings and it adds resonance upon resonance. And this is why I love reading Lovecraft. I think that is a terrific way to, to pause in this conversation. Do you feel that, that we've been able to come to a, a deeper understanding of this? This short poem is very deep. But of course, there's always more to say, isn't there? There is. <laughs>